Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And last we saw that the Lord is making a new covenant and it was quoted directly from Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34 that this is the actual fulfillment of all that the Lord spoke some six or seven centuries before the Lord Jesus came and uh, brought in the new covenant and established it was prophesied six to seven hundred years before through the prophet Jeremiah then again through the prophet Ezekiel the Lord said as we recall looking at it closely it was not the law that had any fault but it was the people the people were not able to be perfected by the law because they needed a new heart And the blood of Jesus is what the entire law pointed to. That all the animals, all types of sacrifices, could never purge to the cleansing of the very conscience. But the blood of Jesus can. That's the power of the blood of the Lamb of God. Hebrews chapter 9. If anyone would like to read God's Word this morning, Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, if you'd like to read from verses 1 to 5, someone please read that. Hebrews chapter 9, NLT version, verses 1 to 5. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and the place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in the tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was the curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these details. We cannot explain these things in detail now. Praise God. Praise the Lord. And someone else, as we continue to pay attention to what God is bringing out here in chapter 9, 
Someone else, please read from 6, verses 6 to 10. Hebrews chapter 9, New King James Version. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part of the high priest went along once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicated this, that the way into the holiness of all ways not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the services perfect in regard to the conscience. Concern only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinance imposed until the time of reformation. Amen. So this could not, praise God, this couldn't purge our conscience. It couldn't cleanse the conscience. As uh, I hear it being read, even from verse 1, I think how all the religions of the world, they have some sort of ritual, and people are involved very, very deeply into it. And they spend lifetimes investing in all kinds of doctrines and forms and rituals, everything, to find that it was a total waste at the end. But when God speaks of these things, although the devil would argue, and people who are blinded by the devil, that this is just another religion. It has its own rituals and covenant and God. Whereas we have our God or gods, we have our rituals. You have certain pillars in your religion, we have five pillars in ours, Islam would say. And Hinduism would have its own rituals and Judaism, as we see in particular, explained in the book of Hebrews, because our Lord came as a Jew, born into a Jewish family, because he was the one who gave the Jewish law, the Mosaic law at Mount Sinai. He was the one who redeemed Israel. He formed Israel. He brought a man named Abram and made him the father of nations, especially Israel. But that Judaism was brought to an end because the fulfillment of all of Judaism all of the Hebrew religion was in Jesus Christ. And now that he's come and the salvation is by faith in his name, though those who kept the law were showing God that they are under the tutor faithfully observing what was necessary until Christ came. And as we mention often, the law consisted of three main elements. One is the moral law that we find, especially in the Ten Commandments and various other laws also. The moral law, doing what is right according to the universal law of God, 
in the law of the conscience that has been enlightened by God and not suppressed or killed. Then we have the ceremonial law, the rituals and these things that we're reading here. Then you have the civil law for the society to maintain justice and order. The moral law continues. But the others are no use. They served their purpose for a time, for some 15 centuries. But after that, there is no more need for those laws. Because the laws pointed to Christ. Every ceremonial washing was an endeavor on the part of the people to cleanse themselves to approach God. But if Christ has come to make the way right into the holiest of holies, then there's no reason for those laws anymore because he sanctifies us with his holy blood. And as we heard read, he sanctifies us or purges us even to the level of the conscience, the very inner voice and inmost voice that tells the person this is wrong, this is right. He completely cleanses to that level. This is why the Lord can say, whom the Son has set free, he is free in deed, in action, in reality, of the truth. But all the other religions, to go through rituals as my grandfather did with all my other ancestors, getting up early in the morning, bowing and doing their washings and different things, quite a number of them felt they were part of the elite group the people who had the truth or truths and they had a standard that made them special the devil will make anyone feel special so long as he can get their soul he will give anything a person desires including religion to make them self-inflate themselves in self-righteousness only to head, a, head down into destruction. But as I hear these things detailed, I see that every word that God gives not only makes sense, there's a divine fulfillment of these things. There's a power that it foreshadowed until we come to the very God who sits between the cherubim with his glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Someone please continue to read Hebrews chapter 9 from verses 11 to 15. And if no one else reads who hasn't read, those who have read, you can pick up. Just give them a few seconds and we don't want to waste any time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Chapter chapter 9, verse 11, NLT version. The Christ hath now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He hath entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands, and is not part of this created world, which is own blood, not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all time, and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could 
cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience, conscience, conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of eternal Christ offer himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance. God has promised them for Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they have committed under that first covenant. Amen. Amen. We've been going to chapter 8 and chapter 9 and uh, going back and forth so that the understanding may be there of what the Lord wants to communicate. It's good to review. Otherwise, we can pass on with verses and chapters and never really understand how they connect. And so we've been going back and forth between chapters. But now we are going through this reading to see what this chapter says. For where there is a testament, verse 16, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. We spoke about this last time. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all. while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. We pointed out that the Lord Jesus said, This is the blood of my new covenant. This is the blood of the New Testament. He came and he said, Moses said this, the people said this, the law said this, but I'm telling you now. And he fulfilled everything and he brought us to another level altogether. Be able to be purged with his own holy blood. Then likewise this Moses, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. The items, notice how consecrated the items are. To think that a modern church or church in modern Christianity is a miniature synagogue or temple and the people are required to be holy the people are required to hear the law, the word, understand it clearly and live their lives according to it with God's help. To think that the vessels are sanctified in the temple. It gives us an understanding of how the equipment, whether it's the pulpit, whether it is the modern day music instruments, wires, everything God has a special interest in. We would think how very carefully the Lord's eyes would have been on every single part of the temple, the sanctuary, the most holy place and the holy place, the entire temple. How the ark was overlaid with pure gold. God had that on purpose to show this is the highest glory. People had an understanding 
that everything had a special meaning. And now, along with the shepherd-sheep relationship, the anointing of God, the counsel from God through the shepherds, the holy relationship between the sheep, how the entire church, one body under the head, Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. The combination of all these elements to make us understand how holy it is, that to which we've been called, a new holy life, a relationship with God and with others who are in the family of God, and the sanctuary where we worship, Holy Spirit comes down, and uh, the place is sanctified. Is there any place that God comes down where it cannot be sanctified? If it's not worth God's grace, God won't be there. He'll leave. But if He stays, His glory rests upon everything, including the physical building, the furniture, the equipment. It's not a stretch of the imagination or something far-fetched, something that is kind of sentimental and uh, nostalgic. To go back and try to correlate these things with the temple and say, we're all so holy and uh, did you know that wire over there that you're using, it's also holy? No, it's true. Actually true. What is holiness after all? In the one sense, we think immediately about purity, which is absolutely true. But in another sense, it is because it's been purified and sanctified, it's been set apart exclusively for the glory of God. Now, that plug or that wire or that extension cord or that fan or that musical instrument, it's not exempt from God's touch. When the people have come to honor God, God's presence sanctifies the whole place, especially when there's a understanding that this is not something mechanical that we do, but we understand very clearly this is God's house. This is God's things. And therefore, it may look ordinary, but it has the touch of God. That's the truth. Therefore, now, how do we handle those things? Perhaps now we understand a little more as we read through the book of Hebrews and would to God that everyone in our church were present in the morning call and all those people, life training school, all those people who are in the groups, how God's holiness has not diminished one bit. is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the service that he calls us to serve him with, including our bodies, first of all, our spirits, our minds, and the building and the equipment, everything becomes what? S-A-C-R-E-D. Sacred. It's actually sanctified. Now, why did the Lord give Passover those ten points? Because the Lord is the Lord. We're not to come casually and think, I'll throw this around over there. We just got to put this in the socket and get this over with. What a privilege. These things have been sanctified. Thus, 
the ordinary individual, the average individual, I should say, get a chance to touch things that are sanctified? No. And especially where the Holy Spirit's working, if the shepherds are hearing from God, is it not true that God's standing behind the word and the consecration? If we can understand God's heart, if we can understand his word, we'll never be casual again with the things of God. We'll consider it an honor to serve the Lord in this house. And furthermore, have the holy fear that I'm touching God's things that are going to be used to glorify God. This is the absolute truth. God hasn't changed. If he says, Wherefore I pray that men everywhere lift up what kind of hands? Holy hands. Holy hands. If the hands themselves in our human body are made holy, able to connect with God's presence, including our minds, our hearts, our eyes, and that person just falling at God's feet, honoring Him. As the 24 elders in the book of Revelation, heaven itself, fall down and cast their crown and say to you, Lord, it belongs to you. All the glory belongs to you. On earth, what a tremendous loss, what a confusion and compromise and blindness, utter blindness to miss this sacred calling, sacred service and understanding that everything is holy unto the Lord. Holiness unto the Lord was what was written on that mitre, that crown that the high priest wore. Holiness unto the Lord. Every believer has that written on the forehead and the heart, all over the body. And we come to serve God, we need to have that concept, that reverence. And all of a sudden, every single item becomes sacred. Not because of our imagination and wishful thinking, or to get a certain feeling. Live in an alter world, another world. But this is reality. So every single thing, and that's one of the things one of the themes of the Holy Spirit in the book of Hebrews, every particular item that God says, come and bring it to me. I want you to make this. Everything is sacred before the Lord. That's why people were put to death. If they would dare to touch those things when they were not sanctified or called. Someone may say, well, I've been in plenty of churches. Everybody touches everything. I didn't see anyone dying. Two reasons for that. One is, God is extremely patient. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ. Second is, 
in these last days, more most churches really don't have God's presence. It doesn't matter. If the devil's running the show, who cares who touches what? The devil empowers people. You can do it. Who told you you can't do this? You're able to do it. You can carry 25 pounds. Come, help. You can sing. We need to use that talent. As we heard in the evening meeting recently and other times, God doesn't need anyone's talent. He needs someone who's empty of themselves so he can fill with the Holy Spirit. And through his Spirit, use that individual to glorify God and bring people to him. Everything is sacred. So, this is why everything was sprinkled with blood. What was the purpose of that? To sanctify the entire place. Sanctify the vessels. The people themselves. Everything was sprinkled with blood. Verse 22, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. You look at the main things that were purified. We say everything. The tabernacle, all the vessels of the ministry. In other places it talks about the high priest being sprinkled. The book, everything. It says almost all things. Speaking of things that don't require that. Just as it says in the Bible, all things are put under his feet, except the one who put them under his feet, the Father. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. So, it's very clear here as the superiority of Christ is being mentioned again, that Blood is necessary to cleanse from sin. And it is the blood of the Lamb that can cleanse us. The other blood with the animals, they can only purify the flesh to make a person be able to approach God, but it could not cleanse the conscience to make them able to enter the Holy of Holies. But now we can. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 to 28, the end of the chapter. Someone please read that. Verse 23, New King James Version. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. 
not that he should offer himself often, has the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Praise God. Praise God. For those who are saved, Christ will appear the second time. And it says here at the end of Hebrews 9 that the reason he will appear in this particular passage in this chapter, in this book, it doesn't say he will appear a second time to take them to be where he is. Take them to the mansion. Take them to heaven. It says for salvation. Salvation has three parts. Redemption has three parts. There's a salvation where I become born again at a specific moment in time. When the Spirit of God convicts me of my sins, I understand His offer to remedy the sin that will lead to hell, the sin nature, and all the various manifestations of it. And I yield myself to the truth that I must repent and I turn from my old ways and I say, I don't want that life that is just deadly and leading to hell. I want to follow Jesus. I want to go to heaven. At that moment when a person confesses to the Lord their sins, truly sorry and turns their back on the sin with God's help and determines to follow the Lord Jesus, If they're sincere, the Lord is faithful. He will save them on the spot. And when they get saved, the whole world will look brand new. They begin to really appreciate God's handiwork. It's one of the first things that happens. There'll be a smile. There'll be a happiness. And there will be a desire to get close to God and to be with God's people. These are some of the marks of genuine salvation. There'll be a desire for the Word of God. That's one of the marks of a genuine salvation. So there's a salvation that comes to a person where they're justified on the spot by the blood of Jesus that was shed 2,000 years ago. When they believe in that, sacrifice for them by the Lord Jesus. And according to Romans 10, 9, 10, that they believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead, having confessed that Jesus is Lord, 
and the confession is made unto salvation with the heart they believe unto righteousness God imputes righteousness to them just like it's written of Abraham he believed and God credited to him as righteousness because he believed God God's promise so a person gets born again just like that believing what Jesus did on the cross knowing their desperate need for Jesus blood to wash them clean and they cry out to the Lord the Lord meets them where they are and all that they've done has been washed away much cleaner and more thoroughly than a vehicle going into a car wash all the stains come off various tools are used to make sure the car comes out sparkly he's able to clean a person up no matter what they've done what they've been through even to the level of the conscience so they get saved but there are three parts the second part of salvation is they are being saved every day how? Spiritually, mentally, and physically. Until the time they have to meet the Lord. How? How many of us have escaped death and we have been aware of it? And how many of us have been made aware that, that there are many more times that we were not aware that God helped us to avoid death? Sometimes we find out after the fact some of those things. Many of the things we don't even know, the invisible operations of Almighty God on behalf of His children through angels who are the ministers, the heirs of salvation. All of us. There's a salvation every day and the other part of that is that we are kept from the power of the devil and the power of sin. So we are maintaining that salvation. We are walking in that salvation. Otherwise, we can lose the salvation if we continue to stay away from salvation by doing things that are contrary to that salvation. In other words, whatever the Lord saved us from, if we go back to it, we are plainly saying, I don't want salvation. But if we stay in the salvation, we're being saved every day. There's a point in time in history, a person's history, where they become justified, they get saved. Again, as the Lord says in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, He that believeth on me has passed from death to life. They actually entered life. They're living in the kingdom of light, and they have life in the sun. And through the journey on this earth, they continue to be in that life by doing what? by obeying the word of God. The third part of salvation is exactly what Hebrews chapter nine verse twenty eight speaks of, just like in the book of Jude and the epistles of John. And that is, even the Gospels. That lift up your heads, your redemption draws nigh. 
Christ will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation to who? The ones who are saved. But if they're saved, why does he need to bring salvation at the end if they're already saved? The same reason why they need to continue to walk in the salvation every day of their lives to remain saved. And the salvation that is speaking of here is the finality, the consummation, the total liberation of the person, including their bodies. There will be no more flesh to contend with. The bodies will be transformed. The total person will have entered, literally, at that moment when Jesus brings the salvation, the redemption. He takes us to be with him. We would have finished the race and completed it and received our crown. So the permanency of salvation is not questioned for a believer who's gotten born again. The maintenance of that salvation, there's no doubt to that about it, that God can help us to maintain it or be in it perseverance. The final reception by heaven, by the Lord of us in his kingdom, when we die, when Jesus appears. There's no doubt about that either. But one thing can keep us from continuing in salvation, from maintaining it, and from receiving it when Jesus appears. And that is sin. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, repeatedly, the warning is against sinning, against the grace of God. God doesn't want anyone to miss it. God is real, and He's a realist. He'll tell it as it is. You got born again. Heaven rejoices. But you got to stay with it. If you don't, you lose everything. You won't be eligible when he comes a second time. Apart from sin. In other words, he already took care of sin on the cross. And the salvation, receiving us into his heaven forever. The completion of the salvation plan would be available to those who are spotless, blameless. That's the kind of bride Jesus is coming for. The wise virgins who were ready and they were prepared. Not the ones who said, well, I'm, I'm invited. I know I'm going to see the bridegroom. I'm going to be in that wedding party. Look, I'm here. I'm right here. We're in the hotel over here just waiting for the time to be called so we can join the party. The wedding party. but they lost their eligibility because they failed to prepare. So all these things tying together that we need to know salvation is not complete as per the scriptures with our spirit, soul, and body, the total person. Because we're still in this body and we still have the flesh that we need to keep crucified. So long as we do our part with God's grace, 
while we are in this body and in this world, God will make sure that we'll be eligible for the brand new body and the entrance into heaven. The question is not on God's faithfulness or his power to keep us. The question only comes in, the iffiness and the doubt and the fear only comes in if a person is not loyal to God. That's the only way. But if a person is loyal to God, there's no problem at all. Not one doubt. Exactly what the devil targets. To cause people to stumble and willfully sin against God, to mess up their conscience, so that they begin to fear and doubt, and the devil said it's not worth it anyway, so might as well live it up, as the apostle quoted the contemporaries, if uh, tomorrow we die, let's eat and drink and be merry. No, there is a day of reckoning. It will be called into account for everything we do. Everything we do. And so we need to fear God and say, I want to make it to heaven. I've been saved. I've got to walk in it to keep it. That's true. It doesn't become legalistic or something that I'm trying to do on my own. No, it's the grace of God that enables me to do that, but I have to do my part. I don't want to frustrate the grace of God, otherwise I lose it all. But if I continue, I'll make it right to the finish line, and God will appear to me a second time apart from sin or salvation. i like to go back to chapter 1 and very briefly just give you some verses that I have highlighted and underlined, which I'm sure will help you as well. just want to quickly give these to you. The book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 4. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He's above the angels. Angels are mighty. And they have ranks. Christ is highest and the highest archangel. It's that powerful. It's God. Next verse I have highlighted in chapter 1. Verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. We must have this. If we're going to follow Jesus, we need to know how he lived. The way he lived was he hated sin. Do we hate sin with a passion? Only then can we claim to love righteousness. I can't say I love clean clothing. Still wear muddy stuff. People say, it's obvious, you like to wear muddy stuff and dirty stuff. How do you come along and say you like clean clothing? Not what you practice. If we need to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ and be his royal priesthood, the high priest hates sin with a passion. He abhors it. He loves righteousness. Our faithful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to say, Oh God, give me a heart like that, Lord. I want it, Lord. And I understand my responsibility, Lord. I need to throw the trash out. I can't say, God, give me a heart to love you. I want to follow you. You give me hope and peace and joy. Yes. 
But I can't court the devil and sing God's praises. I'd be a hypocrite of the worst sort. When somebody cries to God, God change me. I know you love me. I have hope. I thank you. They need to be willing to get rid of what God says to get rid of. Then it means something. God will strengthen them. God will make them holy. This is in chapter 1. In chapter 2, I've highlighted verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. Do you realize? We are made just a little lower than the angels. We've been given so much dominion and authority in Christ. First man, Adam, was given dominion over everything. And he forfeited it. But through Christ, we've gained it back. But what is man that you're mindful of? That's one thing that stands up prominently. To understand our loneliness and almost insignificance compared to the vast celestial bodies in the universe and all the bigger things. And yet God says, I have my eye on humanity who I've made in my own image. I didn't make any angel after my image. There's no one. Mankind I made in my image. And I'm given dominion and through my son who became a man died on the cross. He's purchased redemption for them they can get that dominion. Hallelujah. And that's the significance here. The focus is that Jesus became a man and he won the victory for us that we can dominate every temptation, every persuasion from the devil, overcome everything from the enemy. Claiming that we have authority in Jesus' name and exercising it. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. In creation, the Lord did that. For in that he put all in subjection under him, all these are highlighted. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now, we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone so death seems to be the distinguishing factor apart from the glory and the power for man Jesus became a man It's written in the scriptures that the angels desire to look into those things concerning salvation, but they're not allowed. But the people of God are the prophets and every believer. God has made us very special, made in his image. And going further to verse 14, I have this highlighted, 14 and 15. 
Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The devil is defeated by the Lord Jesus. And, verse 15, release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hallelujah. We are released from the fear of death. We are released from the slavery that comes with the fear of death. Because Jesus tasted death for everyone. And he destroyed the one who had the power of death. The devil. So we can trust the Lord to keep us alive and full of His Spirit and power and grace to finish our calling to glorify Him. And then we get resurrected after we fall asleep as is written about Christians who die. Hallelujah. Going quickly now to chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, I have verse 2 highlighted who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also, also was faithful in all his house. So we see a quality of Jesus Christ. He hated sin, as people say today, with a passion. Vehemently, I hate everything that God hates. I love righteousness. God loves. And here we see he was faithful to the one who called him and appointed him. We want to walk like Jesus. We want to follow our Lord. Be a true sheep. We've got to not only hate evil and love righteousness, but we have to be faithful to Him. Loyal. I have verse 6 highlighted in chapter 3. But Christ as a son over His own house, whose house we are, if, and I have if underlined with a red highlighter, we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end if in other words we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works we are his house if we do what? maintain the salvation that was given by his grace but we hold on to it we have to hold fast God won't hold fast something that we need to hold fast to And in chapter 3, skipping down to verse 12, I have this highlighted, verses 12, 13, and 14. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. How do you know when somebody has unbelief, even though they claim to be a Christian and they really got born again, they were doing good and they were serving God, maybe they were in ministry. How do you know they are caught up in unbelief, evil heart of unbelief, when they want to sin? When they want to do something that is contrary to God's will, they are just like an unbeliever. Isn't that true? If the net result is that a Christian disobeys God, just like an unbeliever disobeys, then he might as well never have known the way of righteousness than to know it and go back to the vomit, as it says in the Epistle of Peter. God is not mocked. He's not going to take someone because they have a label or a clerical collar or they did ministry or they were voted to be the president of whatever denomination. 
He's looking for the proof in the pudding, as the commercial used to say. The proof is in the pudding. Let's see. As we heard about salt, as we're speaking of from the Gospel of Matthew, do we have that flavor, the distinctive quality of a follower of Jesus? If not, I cannot rightfully claim to be a follower of Jesus if I'm following something else. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That's what an unbelief, unbelieving heart will do. It'll cause a person to take the bus south. When God says you have to come north, they'll get on the vehicle or in a vehicle go exactly like Jonah, opposite. Jonah could have died and gone to hell. He could have, because he was a rebel. God had mercy on him, and when he was desperate to live, he got the shock of his life. And he may try to run, but he can't hide from God. And furthermore, God will put him in that washing machine and put him through every cycle and wring him out till the last bit of rebellion is gone. He cried out to God from the belly of that fish. He said, I'm in hell. God have mercy upon me. Get me out, Lord. And he repented. He did. God made that fish spit him out on the shore and he went right back to God's mission that he should have done in the first place. Praise God for a second chance. Now he ended up being bitter, being very selfish, and granted, we heard in the message on that Sunday that the people that he did not like were very wicked. He treated his people very bad. But God was saying, get over it because I'm forgiving them. And he couldn't accept God's grace for somebody else, even though he wanted himself and he got it. And the book ends, of course, with seemingly no resolution except that he was bitter and God called him out on it, on that and told him how can you be like this when I care about these children these people in Assyria in Nineveh who don't know yet being in that environment, being so young. Children. I want to save them. Adults may be gone, but I want to save these kids. And because the Lord Jesus quotes Jonah, and because his three days in the process of death being dead was likened to Jonah being in the fish three days three nights we have good reason to believe that Jonah did repent but we are called to make sure we don't have any unbelief that will cause us to do something opposite to what God said 
which means I'm in the process of departing from the living God. And the process meaning permanently. Person can backslide. They can say, you know, I backslid 20 times since I got born again. I'm still here. I didn't apostatize. The grace of God, but if a person presumes and continues to do that, it would be horrible. There will be a time when they won't have grace at all to even be able to feel that they need to repent. Dangerous state. So every time a person departs from God, they're gambling with their eternity. That's the truth. So I have this highlighted. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another, encourage one another, urge one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. person gets persuaded by demons. I think I want to drink today. It'll just be one. And after all, this is a very good friend of mine. And he's also Christian, or she's also Christian. We know how to hold our liquor. We're not going to do anything foolish, like drinking and driving, or driving while intoxicated. We're responsible. And also, didn't Jesus turn water into wine somewhere? I think it's okay. And if they're not convicted that I can't do this, there'll be a snowball avalanche effect where the slippery slope will become vertical at some point where there'll be no way to climb back. That's why we have a responsibility in the body of Christ as you see at the end of James, book of James. If one of you turns his brother, turns another believer, essentially saying back to his senses, stop sinning. Know that you've saved that soul from death, a multitude of sins and deaths. We need to call up everybody we know when the Holy Spirit leads, not to go and camp out with them and fall into sin with them while trying to save them. But as we pray, God will bring people to our minds. All of a sudden we have a burden and we can call, but we need to be strong and to be led by the Spirit of God. Too many people ended up becoming the girlfriend or boyfriend of people they tried to save and they didn't intend that in the beginning. Ended up going downhill fast and a lot of them ended up going to hell. While trying to do a good thing. We need to be very careful to guard our souls very jealously. This soul belongs to God. I'm not going to let anything defile it. I'm not falling for the devil's tricks. I'm going to listen when I'm told not to do something by someone who's walking with God 
and especially a shepherd was anointed by God. Why? It's for my own good, to prevent misery, maybe eternal misery. So exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It can cascade. It works over time. For we have become partakers of Christ, and I put with the whole highlighted section here, uh, red underlined highlighter on the word if again. You see the conditionality of the salvation. You see the conditionality of God's love. When we've been told all along in so many places by so many people, God loves you unconditionally. We need to understand God is equal opportunity to every single human being on the planet. Always was, always will be until one of two things happens. Time ends and the Lord comes back. It'll be too late then. Or the person has lost the grace to repent and believe. There's a condition that when the grace is offered, we must take advantage of it and repent. If we don't, if we don't, the only other alternative to God's life and God's kingdom is a kingdom that's so dark and miserable deceptive vulgar unclean destructive if God's love is conditional the only way anyone can ever say perhaps that his love is unconditional is that he doesn't call anyone to fit a certain profile before he considers them for salvation. In other words, there are no conditions placed on what type of person can come as per their color, their height, their educational achievement, social status, financial wealth, talents, all these things. None of those matter. They're all immaterial as far as the offer of God's free gift of life through his love. We can say God has given an unconditional invitation with regard to those things. And yet, even that offer is conditional in that whoever it is that comes, they've got to repent. So there is a condition there. I suppose I understand why people would say his love is unconditional. Because they've been given so many chances. And we think, well, if God was conditional about his love, I would not have been able to come back. Because 
if you would have said, well, you have to clean up your act and then I'll take you back, um, I would never have come back. But he came looking for me while I was doing bad and he forgave me. We need to understand that doesn't mean that it's unconditional. That only means that God's love reached out yet again. But there's a condition to come back like the prodigal son. There must be a genuine remorse Genuine repentance, both were evidenced in that prodigal's life. How? He cried and he talked within himself. How he sinned against heaven and against his dad. And he said, this is what I'm going to say when I go back. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Please make me a servant somewhere in your house. That's genuine remorse. And the act of repentance that went beyond his conversation within himself and his plan was that he actually left the pigsty of a life that he lived, began heading back home. Repentance is not 360, but 180. Getting from getting up from where one is, turning about face and saying, I'm leaving that place to go to where? To the Father. Salvation is conditional. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, God so loved the world that he gave the offer of salvation that whoever does something will be saved. They have to do that something. It's conditional. Because a person has been bailed out by God's mercy and grace many, 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 many times. It doesn't mean that his love and grace are not conditional. They are. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How come? God partial? That even though Noah was really bad like the rest of the people... He just said, I'm going to pick Noah today. Noah was a man who was perfect in his generations. That's why he got saved. When people take that to the gospel, they think, wait a minute. So now you're saying you have to be perfect to be saved? No, there's a quality. There's a quality of a person wanting the right thing, which is righteousness there's a quality of a person making a walk in a direction toward righteousness that comes from God Noah happened to be one who was walking with God but you know what he had to have a change of mind one day sometime especially when he was one of only eight people imagine that we're not talking about one person on a block of say 50 people we're not talking about one out of a hundred in a neighborhood or 200 we're not talking about one out of 8 million in New York City we're talking about one man out of some people estimate maybe 50 to 100 million people at that time I've seen the math on that How do you get to be one out of some 50 to 100 million? 
along with seven others. They all met a condition. They believed God. They believed God. That's the condition. No one gets to go to heaven because of grace without obedience. Grace is given so that we may be able to obey and we got to do the obeying part. We have to do the obedience part. The ten virgins were there. All were given grace, but five met the condition. So don't let anyone fool you. And I suppose it's not intentional. And I've given the reason why one can think that God's love is unconditional. We've clearly stated how it is equal opportunity. It doesn't mean there's no condition. And also how people have experienced so much of God's love. Just when they thought it was all over, he came. doesn't mean there's no condition. He offered grace again, expecting us to do what? Go with him, which is a condition. If you want to be with me, with the offer I made for you to come and live with me in my kingdom, you've got to leave your old kingdom in service to Satan. There's a condition. person wants to get married, they can't have ten girlfriends until the prospective bride I'll marry you but I have ten other people what would a man think of a wife that says that I have ten other boyfriends and what if the man says no you have to leave all those ten if you're going to be with me be my wife imagine if the wife says but where's grace why can't you love me unconditionally like God does That's a warped, satanic twist of the definition of grace and salvation from God's truth. This is precisely the reason why many, many people, thousands of them, end up dying on drugs and immorality somewhere, drunken somewhere, caught up in some violence that they should have stayed away from, some relationship. You know where they are? Horribly, horribly in hell because they ended not in a good way. They ended in sin. Somebody told them God's love is unconditional and you can't out the grace of God. Did you hear me? You can't out the grace of God. That's what I heard from a preacher I've said this before who's been known around the world for the past 30 years at least as I know. Huge church in Atlanta, he said. Let me tell you, you can't outsend the grace of God, really. That's why people were rejected by God when they presumed upon God's grace and did sin against God. Saul, Judas, Ahithopo, Homogenes, Philetus. A lot of people. I believe Demas was mentioned also by the Apostle John. That he's gone up to the world. Stay away from him. He's been blinded. He was part of the crowd of God's disciples, but he left. Or those thousands of people who the Lord gave the free bread and fish. 
They loved him. They followed him. The moment he says, you have, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you got to be one with me. They said, we don't want this. We don't want this at all. We don't want you to be a master where we have to follow you and do everything you say. I want to be independent. I'll take the freebies, but I'm going for a free ride somewhere else. So dangerous. It's so critical that we understand the truth as God gives it because that will keep our souls safe when many people are foolishly going down the great falls, like Niagara Falls, down to hell. But we've been given the true doctrine in the Word of God so that not only can we make it, we can bring others too and say, wake up. Did you hear the good news? What's that? You don't have to sin. God's grace is powerful. Did you hear the good news? What's that? Only if you obey, you're going to make it to heaven. How's the good news? Isn't that making it harder that I have to obey? That's what you're telling me? It's good news because you know exactly how to get to heaven now. You don't have to believe the lies. That'll take you to hell. And you can warn other people too. Just like Noah. Repent. Get into the ark. Get into Christ. How do you get into Christ? How do you stay in Christ? By divorcing the devil. If you want to be married to Christ, we've got to divorce the devil. And how many Christians do we know? But it's so hard. God understands. And plus, His love is unconditional. May the Lord help us to be ever grateful. He's given us the truth. And we're no longer going to gamble with our souls under some false doctrine from the devil. And the joy of walking with a clear conscience is that the Lord can entrust into our hands more and more of His grace and His gifts so that we can shine brighter for the Lord and live wholesome lives full of joy and peace no matter what happens. No longer a slave to sin. You know that song I heard in Teen Challenge when we ministered several times. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Beautiful song, especially if somebody is attacked with the spirit of fear and anxiety. To know that I don't have to. Slavery is a bondage. Christ came to set me free from that stuff. No demon can keep me afraid. He's not giving me the spirit of fear, but of love, power and a sound mind. Power, love and a sound mind. But I wish people would also sing, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am a child of God. I would say that more people will get straightened out and be safe if they sang that song first. Sing the second one or the second version as I see it, in order of importance. I think the first one. So people can scratch their heads and ask the preacher or the person who's singing or the teacher, uh, I'm a child of God. 
But I do sin. And somebody can tell them the truth, the good news. Well, if you sin, did you know the Bible says, Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin? So you got to make your choice. Do you want to be a slave to sin, no longer a child of God? Or you want to get rid of sin so you can be a child of God, truly? And then show them how to overcome. Show them the joys of obedience. The freedom of the conscience. You know how many people are walking around, men and women and children. Young boys, girls. With a conscience that's defiled. And it seems no matter what they do, even ministry, they just can't seem to shake off that haunting feeling of inadequacy. Why? Because they're in shackles to some sense. They can't be on the ready when God says to do something fully. They can only pretend at best. That's no way to live. That's a living state of death. Or living a state of death. We need to have a clear conscience. And if Jesus' blood in Hebrew says, He has purged me, even to the level of the conscience, that means nothing can hold me down. In terms of sin, which is the only thing that can keep me held in slavery. But the Lord has come to set us free. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as the rebellion. Praise God. I have other things highlighted that may be of help to you. But we'll stop today this point and pray Father in heaven we thank you oh Lord I thank you I thank you Lord for showing me the truth one day Lord when I was hearing lies for a long time going to different churches and ministries Lord that I can be a partaker of your holiness and be holy so that I can make it to heaven as it says in Hebrews twelve fourteen. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us to this, Lord, though unplanned, so critical to the eternal life and the joy, quality of life, even here below. Thank you, Lord, that when we please you, you said, you will open the windows of heaven Give us everything we need and cause us to overflow. A cup overflows. Many others can be blessed. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So many people, Lord, uh, I should say some people in the population want to do good. They want to help people. And they feel good when they help people, but when they really think about it, they can only help people very in a very limited way. and They can never help them eternally, but if there's a way in which we can help people eternally, the ultimate satisfaction, what a wonderful thing that would be and we have it. Because if we follow you, you said you will make us fishers of men. We will be successful in bringing people 
to heaven with us. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. You're the faithful high priest. Lord, when we sin, you forgive us, but you remind us that we cannot continue like that. And you give us power and encouragement, everything we need, Lord, including godly people and the body of Christ to encourage us to go the right way and leave the life of misery behind of being a slave to sin. Thank you, Jesus. We are victorious in you, more than conquerors. Through you, Lord, who loved us and gave yourself for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for being with every brother, every sister on the call. With everything they need, Lord, I pray that you supply abundantly from heaven, O Father. And heal their bodies, O Lord, God. Jesus, heal their bodies by his stripes we heal, Lord. Every kind of, Father, pain, Father, at every level, not just the physical level, Father, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, you are the healer, Father. Heal, Father. Heal, Lord. I pray, heal, Lord. May everyone feel your comfort, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, God, this morning. And have the courage to do right in your sight. And be bold and humble to proclaim your goodness, Lord. Your truth. In Jesus' name I thank you. Amen.